Hello, welcome back to Out of Curiosity. We are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. Uh, I am Garland, sitting here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, joining me from Portland, Oregon, the illustrious Cameron Hager. (laughs) So illustrious. I knew you'd really pause there. You had no response I would just, to that. Just sort just of short circuit my befuddled, brain. Yeah, befuddled <laughs> response upon being told by another man that you are illustrious, uh, worthy of illustrating. No, I appreciate um, it. So, I appreciate yeah, so it. So here's our, here's our topic today. There's a lot of ways to ask it, I guess. I'll just kind of ask it this way. What must all Christians believe? Like, what is it that Christians must believe? Uh, and I know by saying must, um, it's a little bit uh, intense intentionally uh, kind of provocative, I guess. We, but, but we wanted uh, you to click on this episode. We, so we, we had really to frame wanted it you so to know, provocatively. To this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send it to your friends. Um, so, I mean, the reality is um, there is a, there are, there are a whole lot of differences among Christian groups. I mean, I think it's one of the jokes I think people make about Christianity is y'all can't agree on anything. Um, and so, uh, while I think that's a misnomer, I think it, it then becomes helpful maybe for us to ask a, a really foundational question, which is what does it mean to believe Christianly? Uh, and, and we're getting this question. I think uh, many people have asked in uh, to, for us to do episodes on, say, uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, what are the differences there? Um, and before wading into any of that, it might be more helpful just to say, well, what does it what marks Christians in their belief? Yeah. What is basic Christian yeah. belief that if you, the things that if you depart from, you're not in any kind of clear sense Christian anymore? <laughs> right. Know? And again, we say this, I feel like we've been saying this a lot, but the stakes are pretty high. Um, so to say that person is no longer within the Christian faith, that's a strong claim to make. And I think for many, uh, that's the kind of thing that makes them incredibly uncomfortable in our modern yeah. world. Uh, so you're going to sort it all out for us with winsomeness, <laughs> grace, and charity in the next 20 minutes or so. So yeah, please do that for us, Cameron. Yeah, as you said, it's it's an incredibly important subject. Like what, what does it mean to believe Christianly? And where at, at, at what point, if your belief departs from a certain set of doctrines, do we say like that's not Christianity anymore? It's incredibly important um, for Christians, obviously, because we want to honor Jesus and we want to be orthodox. We want to have right belief, um, and we want to know like who is standing shoulder to shoulder with us in um, in trying to pursue the historic Jesus. Um, it's also really important because we live in a day. One of the most important, I think, helpful books I've read recently, uh, maybe a year or two ago, is called Strange Rights by Tara Isabella Burton, who I just who just defined this thing that's happening all around us that I think you'll recognize when what she calls the rise of remixed religion, basically um, spirituality and religion has not gone away um, in, in the last uh, over the last decades, but it's mutated into something that's very much a pick and choose kind of a la carte. I like this element from Buddhism. I like this element from Jesus and Christianity. I like this element from sort of wellness culture. I like this element maybe from the occult or whatever. And you kind of pull it together and you've got your own bespoke, custom tailored religion that, uh, that gives you significance, that gives you meaning, that gives you pleasure, that gives you joy, that gives you a sense of security and maybe direction for your life. Um, and Christians, uh, I mentioned Jesus in there, Christians are not immune to this. I think every one of us has the temptation, even if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, to say, well, I like these parts of Jesus or Christianity or the Bible or historic Christian faith, uh, but I don't like these. 
And all of, I mean, myself included, I feel this all the time. I feel this tension. I feel the, the desire to say, well, what if I just kind of fudged this part or ejected this part? And what I'm really trying to do is make a Christianity in my own image. Uh, but but I, I love this passage. I come back to it all the time. One little verse in Jude, Jude uh, verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And Jude is saying there is such a thing as a basic central faith that is once for all, has been once for all delivered to everyone who who, who is rightfully considered a, a Christian. And if that's true, I think it's crucially important that we figure out what that is. Maybe another way of saying that is what is basic orthodox simple Christianity that unites all mm-hmm. the various denominations and so forth in around a central core that is authentic Christian belief. Um, yeah. And I think maybe it's helpful here. Uh, you know, we, we, when we have these kinds of conversations, often words like orthodox doctrine, yeah. these kinds of things, uh, these words come out. Orthodox just means right teaching. Uh, that's what yeah. the word means. It comes from an old Greek word. Um, and I think it also it also brings up this this issue. Okay, well, we're, we're going to talk about orthodoxy. Well, don't Christians really disagree within their Christianity? Aren't there like 400 denominations? I'm in the South, yeah. and there's denominations on every corner down here. First this, second that. And I'm sure that's just reflecting some disagreement that a group of Christians had at some point along the way. So help me understand what we're talking about. We might, like, are these like the essentials versus the non-essentials or essentials versus maybe really important things, but not essential? How, how would you articulate that if I'm new to this conversation? Yeah, that's a, impo- a hugely important question. I'm so glad you asked it. Um, yes, Christians Christians disagree over all kinds of things. And the issue is that some of those things that Christians disagree about um, are so fundamental to what it means to be a Christian that that for some people on the divide of those debates, you would say, someone in this debate is not a Christian. <laughs> like, like they've, right. they've rejected Jesus at some point. They've rejected his divinity or, the, or his saving work on the cross or whatever. Like you've departed from Christianity. But then others of them are obviously far less important. They, they are things that we disagree about and we go, oh, great. Well, you're still Christian. I'm still Christian. We just disagree. And maybe that's a really important thing, but it's not the kind of thing that that makes Christian marks Christian versus non-Christian, or maybe it's very unimportant and we should just say, great, you know, we'll continue to lead small group together or whatever, uh, though we disagree about this thing. So I, I do think kind of parsing that out is really helpful. I've seen some books do that. Um, some really helpful books recently that have come out, but I, I really like the way my professor Gary Brashears at Western seminary frames it. He, 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 he gives four tiers of sort of theological certainty the top tier, he says, the most important, the center of the bullseye, maybe if you want to call it that, is beliefs to die for. This is what is essential for salvation and the essentials of Christian orthodoxy. So this might include like the authority of Scripture, uh, the Trinity, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus died on behalf of sinners to save them, the doctrine of salva- salvation by grace, um, and so on and so forth. Down from there, you have beliefs to divide for. This isn't what makes you a Christian or not a Christian, but this is just, hey, this is so important to what it means to live out 
our life as a church community together, that if we disagree on here, we may need to be a part of a different church or a d- different denomination. And so, and maybe um, a good example of something like that would be like the, there's, there was a huge debate uh, in the Reformation period that lingers to this day about, say, the way that salvation works you know, God's activity in salvation versus humans' activity in salvation. And those are, it's a really important uh, doctrinal thing that Christians have divided over. And, it, and I, it, I understand why they have divided uh, over it. Uh, but both of those two groups would still be affirming the same Jesus, we might say. Yeah, absolutely. You go down from there, a third category, as he says, beliefs to debate for. So these are significant. They matter. They're really worth, like, clarifying and, 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 and getting into the weeds over, but there's no reason they should prohibit Christians from worshiping and working together in the same church community, even though they disagree. So something that comes to mind, even that maybe we have talked about on our podcast is something like the age of the earth. I think that's really important. Like what is Genesis one and two trying to communicate to us? We should debate it. We should chop it up. But I would hope that people wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, <laughs> Divide over divide or, the church. I'm or, leaving, or or certainly say that someone's not a Christian, depending on where they right where they right. come down on that. So, although um, I've heard that before, sure. So finally, <laughs> he he says beliefs to decide for. He says these are issues that are so insignificant or vague in Scripture that it just it just doesn't spark much debate. You know, pursue that to your interest, to your level of interest in it. But like, um, yeah, let's not let's not even spend a whole lot of time debating it. Probably. An issue comes in when obviously every person's going to have to decide for themselves, like, where does an issue fall on that grid for them? Is this something that I personally feel like I need to divide from my church or my denomination over or not? Uh, Or is this something I'm comfortable, even if I disagree with kind of the doctrine of my church? Well, that's okay. That's a debate for issue for me. So those all get kind of muddy. Where we want to focus on in this episode is that top tier or the center of the bullseye, the die for things, the the essential Christian beliefs. Um, And we want to say, like, we want to do this with humility. Uh, You know, (laughs) this is this is very tricky. This itself is in some ways a debated issue. But I, I basically want to just give us a starting point for wading into it that that has been helpful for me. Hopefully it'll be helpful for you listening. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, first of all, I, I, this might be the most obvious thing I've ever said on this podcast, but if we want to have uh, essential Christian belief, we have to start with Christ. We have to start with with, with Jesus himself. And Christian, yeah. Yes, that's right. So we, we, we start forming our theology in community and in submission to Jesus. And, and why trust Jesus? I mean, these are things we've talked about before. I'll just r- rifle through them quickly. First, he raised from the dead. Paul said, if he didn't raise from the dead, <laughs> our faith is futile. Uh, we're still right. in our sins and uh, people are dead and gone who have, who have died. We'll never see him again. But verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Um, yeah, it's all a game. Yeah, it's all a game. But he has risen from the dead. People saw him. That is the central hinge point that we we believe. So if Jesus did walk out of the tomb we better listen to what he has to say. Not just right. that, though, but but Jesus is the center of the scriptures. You think of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, uh, beginning with Moses and the prophets and interpreting to the people all in all the scriptures the things concerning him. The idea is that everything in the Old Testament is in some way related and pointing to Jesus, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And then the New Testament, of course, written after him is 
the account of what he has done and what he is still doing through his church into the period of the early church. And so he is the, the center fulcrum point of everything. And then finally, that he is, he is God with us. Listen to this from Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Um, or think of the words of Jesus to say, like, like, you know, Philip says to Jesus, I've got this in John 14, Lord, show us the father and it's enough. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long that you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. Um, right. How can you say, show us the father? So Jesus is uh, the ultimate, like clearest revelation of God. And so if we want to have right Christian belief, we start with submitting to this Jesus and believing what he says. And I think I'm actually appreciative of why you, you're starting here is I think oftentimes this kind of discussion can turn pretty clinical pretty quickly. It can turn to lists, you know, of, uh, of doctrines and creeds, and those are really significant. They're really important. But I think it's, it's so helpful, actually, for us to start with, behold the man, see Jesus. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, we're Jesus followers. We're Christians. We are oriented toward Jesus as king as our fundamental identity claim. And so uh, I, I, I appreciate you just, it's, it's almost devotional here listening to you talk, starting us right back there. Yeah. Thank you. And that, yeah, it's devotional for me. It's, and it's really easy to get lost in the weeds, but yes, we start with doing theology under Jesus, but then you go, okay, want to do that. Where do I do that? And I think the next ring out then is of course the scriptures, the scriptures. And I would say the scriptures alongside the Holy spirit for two reasons. A, the Bible claims that the Holy spirit inspired, breathed out the scriptures. He is the co-author of the scriptures. Um, but then also um, the Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures for us, we're told. We, we, by virtue of having the Spirit within us, he helps us understand what is in them. So you've got Jesus, then you've got the Spirit and the scriptures as kind of a second ring. Um, and Jesus himself, let, lest we forget, he authorized, I think we may have just already mentioned this, he authorized the scriptures. I mean, listen to the words of Jesus in John 10, 35. He's, he's de- talking about a specific issue they're debating. He says, quote, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, then Jesus himself looks at the Old Testament scripture and says, it is authoritative. Its authority cannot be broken. It's not going to pass away. It must be trusted. He quoted it constantly in his ministry. He understood his identity in relationship to the Old Testament. If if, if anything is clear is that Jesus absolutely 100% viewed the ancient Hebrew scriptures as authoritative. But then what about the New Testament? I like to go to John 14, uh, verse 25. He says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And I think there we get this implicit sort of baptizing of the spirit of the Spirit's ministry through the apostles, eventually through the New Testament writings itself uh, that sort of codified their teachings, some of, some of it written by them. Um, and so both directions you look from Jesus to the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have him giving his authority away to them and saying, you represent me, the Old Testament and the New, which is really crucial. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's important because if we center it all on Jesus, that was your first thing. Well, Jesus did not, he didn't leave any writings that we know of. Exactly. And so how do we know Jesus? And uh, there are many versions of Jesus uh, that are popular in our culture. Uh, some uh, even... 
uh, proposed by really smart New Testament scholars, but not Orthodox. Uh, the question is, where do we where do we gain access to the historical Jesus? And uh, you know, as as the Jesus following community. We, we affirm it's in the scriptures by way of what you're saying. Jesus, uh, Jesus informed them through his spirit. He authorized them through his spirit and his apostles. And so uh, I recognize if you're skeptical, listen to this, uh, that's going to be a bar for you to maybe uh, have to jump over. We talked about in a previous episode about the, uh, that it is not irrational or incoherent for um, uh, a, a Christian to affirm that the scriptures are authoritative. And, uh, and so that might be something to go uh, and, and listen to or think about. Um, but okay, so we start with Jesus. Our theology begins with Jesus, and then it's informed by the scriptures that have been written, and they're uh, illuminated by the Spirit. I have a feeling we might be going to some creeds at some point. Where do we? Where do yeah. those come in? What the church has interpreted as orthodox? Yeah, that's exactly where I was going. So every Christian—it's not controversial to say every Christian—and we could even look at the three major branches of Christianity: the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Protestant Church. They all. This is uncontroversial to say theology is in submission to Jesus and in submission to the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. So everyone's going to go, yes and amen. But then we have a bunch of, of uh, decisions to make about like, well, is there any limit to that? Could anyone say anything about the Scriptures and, and, and just kind of go off to the races there? And I think it's very important then to come back to, again, that Jude 3 and 4. Um, beloved, I was eager to write to you about your common salvation. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He says, look, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying there's always going to be people coming and going from genuine Christianity, trying to twist it and pervert it and to deny essential things. But hang on to the one true, once-for-all faith that has been delivered. And what we see is in the early church period, once you get out of the New Testament period, um, very quickly there was this desire to sort of write additional statements that were trying to protect what is the basic core kind of interpretive grid for understanding the scriptures uh, in conversation with the Spirit. And there's this great book called Common Roots written by Robert, Robert Weber who wrote this. He said, what was needed therefore to by the Christian to combat these perversions of Christian truths uh, was a summary of the Christian faith, an authoritative answer to, in this case, the Gnostic threat. Consequently, summaries of apostolic Christianity began to emerge independently of one another in various parts of the Roman Empire. So there, so in quote, basically these groups were saying, okay, we have our, we have the, the forming New Testament, but we need like these simple summaries that we can use to kind of give an interpretive grid. And they started to pop up. Um, and what's fascinating was these little summaries that came to be known as rules of faith were incredibly similar. There was just this virtually uniform sense of like, whenever these were written, they were the same. They were the same. They represented the apostles teaching correctly. From there, a little bit later, you had a, a statement formed called the Apostles' Creed. And, and the word creed, a lot of Protestants are like kind of a skeptical relationship to the creeds, but it, it just it's a transliteration of the Latin word credo, which means I believe. It's a statement of what I or we believe. The creeds would capture, try to capture this basic Christian belief. Um, and, they, and these early creeds have held true since the time of Jesus and the apostles. They've been things that the churches basically uniformly have affirmed. So the Apostles' Creed tried to tie up the key sort of elements of these early rules and statements of faith that were written 
um, and, and it was first written in the year AD 140. And then the final form of it was established in the middle of the fifth century. And, and basically the, the apostles creed is thought to capture the basic faith of the apostles themselves. Um, so if you don't know the apostles creed, I would go and read it. It's basically a, a statement that virtually all Christians at all times have said, yes, this accurately summarizes some of the most core essential teachings of the Bible in step with the apostles, like the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed to establish his church. From there, there was another creed. I'll just, the last creed we'll mention, because I think it's the last one that carries <laughs> this kind of deep authority is the Nicene Creed. Um, that was formulated over a couple of councils uh, in the fourth century that convened the key leaders from the early church everywhere before any of the major splits between the uh, Orthodox and Catholic or certainly before the Protestant Reformation. So all the best thinkers of the unified church coming together to answer some of the key theological questions. It expanded on the Apostles' Creed to clarify the divinity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and to clarify the doctrine of the Trinity in particular. And so... If you want to know, like, as I want to submit to Jesus and the scriptures and the spirit, is there any, like, kind of summary that can give me guardrails? I think we look to these early creeds, the apostles and the Nicene creeds. These two creeds basically, listen to this, they basically unify all of the branches of Christianity and mark the boundaries of historic Orthodox Christianity. So if, if you want to reject anything from these early creeds, you begin to reject Christianity as the word has been historically understood. And I, I want to say that with the weight. To be Christian in a historic sense of the word is to affirm, basically, what's in these creeds. Or rather, to say it negatively, if you reject them, you are departing from the historical understanding of Christianity. Um, I think we should affirm these creeds. We don't say they're equal with Scripture at all. I don't want you to hear that. They, they are not the inspired word of God. But to depart from them is to say, I am stepping out of what basically all Christians for all time have agreed is an accurate summary of the Scripture. And we just want to do that with a lot of hesitation. Let me be either the skeptic uh, or just the Dan Brown fan. Okay, I'll, either way. Sure. Um, this is actually stemming from a conversation I had uh, with somebody, uh, a real person recently, somebody that I, I have known for years and care about. Um, the, the saying goes like this, um, and, uh, and respond, I'm putting you on a spot here. Uh, okay. Didn't those councils, weren't those just collections of people clamoring for power, sort of inventing Christian theology? Um, it, nobody was in agreement, you know, they're sort of inventing this theology, um, and largely for political reasons and for reasons of power. H how would you respond to that? I, I, that is the, that is such a familiar refrain now, uh, in our culture that I, I think for some, it's almost, it's almost a matter of, uh, of acceptance. Like, of course, uh, you can't trust those. H how would you respond to that? Uh, I would say the Nicene Creed, which is the one where a lot of this gets gets leveled out because it's the one that's the most authoritative and it's uh, the one that before there were a lot of other divisions. Um, if you just look at the history, it, it's that's a really hard case to make because what you have is actually like church leaders agonizing over 
trying to define these really, really important points of the faith and doing it in goodwill and with vigorous debate and coming out with something that could be received by all (laughs) the churches that were existent at the time. I think that just radically mischaracterizes. And if you read Dan Brown's that they say other things about what these creeds were even trying to decide that are just so off the mark, um, if you you read anything about them. Um, But second, I would say, judge it against the scripture. Again, the Nicene Creed is not the authority. Jesus and the scriptures and the spirit are the ultimate authority. Read it. Um, the creeds, I think, that the, the Nicene Creed in particular, it captures like the spirit of the New Testament, what the New Testament is trying to say. It brings illumination to it. It's not inventing new ideas. Just judge for yourself. Does this read to you like something that is just this sort of, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Embattled, political, sort of game, mi- yeah. political minority position on something. I just I think if you'll read the creed with in one hand and your New Testament in the other hand, you will see no this this is summarizing um, these very clear, very central concepts from the Bible that we do have. So, so before we we look at our last the, the last one, uh, let's just let's just run one issue through real quick, okay. and I think this is why we're even doing this. Um, so to, to to center it on Jesus in the teaching of the scriptures. By the, by the Spirit, as they've been historically understood by the historic church, the global church. Um, if we take an issue, say, about the deity of Jesus, that he is 100% God, 100% man, he is God in the flesh, that becomes the kind of thing that Christians say and have historically said, rooted in the Scripture, pointing to Jesus, that they say, we die for this. And that is... This is not. We're not going to get off into the question of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. We'll do those in another podcast. But in a very simple, um, just a very distilled, simple statement, that is enough for Christians to say that is not the historical, biblical, Christ-centered teaching to deny that Jesus would be God, but instead a creation of God, or to say that God is a unity, not a tri-unity or a trinity, would be to deny a core, something we die for, tenet of Christianity. We're going we're gonna to yeah. flesh that out more in subsequent episodes, but um, this is why we're doing this kind of foundational one at first. Yeah. And we said at the beginning, the stakes do become really high on, yeah. on things like that. Uh, okay, where are we going now? Well, I want to just put one other aspect to this, doing doing theology in the context of, we've talked about the historic church, but I want to set next to that the global church. So Christianity is is the most diverse, you know, ethnically, uh, nationally diverse religion in human history by design. Like Jesus meant for it to be, uh, even go, all the way back to the Old Testament. Biblical religion has always meant to be invitational to the nations, and by the grace of God, it has been. You find more diverse expressions of the Christian church and Christian theology uh, than you do any other religion by a mile. Um, and so what's interesting to think about is how how do churches look and how does Christian belief look across these different cultures and in these different countries um, across time and across the globe? And the goal is not, it's not to try to find like the one infallible culture that has correctly interpreted the Bible and theology. You're never going to find that. We all have our blind spots. We're all formed in weird ways. Uh, But the goal is for us to all bring our learnings to the table. Us here in the U.S., you in Northwest Arkansas, me in Portland, people in China, people in India, you name it, to bring our learnings to the table and then let them mutually sharpen one another and our blind spots. Now, I just want you to listen to this. 
Historian Mark Knoll writes in his book, The New Shape of World Christianity, these amazing observations. I bet most Christians don't know this. I bet most people don't know this. This past Sunday, this is him, Noel now, this past Sunday, it's possible that more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. Yet in 1970, there were no legally functioning churches in all of China. Only in 1971 did the communist regime allow for one Protestant and one Roman Catholic church to hold public worship services. This past Sunday, more Anglicans attended church in each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda than did Anglicans in Britain and Canada and Episcopalians in the United States combined. And the number of Anglicans in the church in Nigeria was several times the number of those in other African countries. This past Sunday, more Presbyterians were at church in Ghana than in Scotland, and more were in congregations of the Uniting Presbyterian Church of Southern Africa than in the United States. This past Sunday, there were more members of Brazil's Pentecostal Assemblies of God at church than the combined total in the two largest U.S. Pentecostal denominations, the Assemblies of God and the Church of God in Christ. This past Sunday, the churches with the largest attendance in England and France had mostly black congregations. About half of the churchgoers in London were African or African-Caribbean. Today, the largest Christian church in Europe is in Kiev, and it is pastored by a Nigerian of Pentecostal background. This past Sunday, there were more Roman Catholics at worship in the Philippines than in any single country in Europe, including historically Catholic Italy, Spain, or Poland. This past week in Great Britain, at least 15,000 Christian foreign missionaries were hard at work evangelizing the locals. Most of these missionaries are from Africa and Asia. In a word... The Christian church has experienced a larger geographical distribution in the last 50 years than in any comparable period in its history, with the exception of the very earliest periods of the church. That blew that, me away. It's, that's actually amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, my point is that the Christianity is, is not, if you're listening to this, like, oh, isn't this orthodoxy stuff? We're just talking about like white people in the West trying to like assert their power. No, no, no. The, 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 cent, the, the center of Christianity has shifted to the global south, and we're going to be feeling it deeply in the decades to come as they're going to be sending missionaries to places like Fayetteville, Arkansas, and Portland, right. Oregon. And London, um, England, yeah. And, and the quality of their belief largely is historic, orthodox Christianity as has right. been understood throughout time. So uh, we, we reject their witness to what Christianity is at our great peril, I suppose, is my point yeah. here. I, I, can, I can give a personal anecdote to that. It just meant a lot to me. Uh, if you ever had the, uh, the, the privilege of traveling, particularly to the Middle East, um, I, I got the chance to go to Israel last year and visit uh, the Holy Land, and it struck me, um, the people that were, uh, there were very homogenous-looking groups that were affirming Judaism and Islam. They essentially looked talked, dressed the same. So you're in a place where you've got Jews and Muslims all around, and you could basically tell them apart. And then you've got people in town visiting who uh, you were clearly with Christian groups, and I saw black Christians in traditional African garb. I saw Christians from uh, Asian countries. We saw people coming from European countries, from the Americas, from South America, with completely different languages, completely different ways of prayer, completely different um, dress, uh, skin color, and as a as a Southern white American Christian, it just uh, it was almost something that brought me to tears to think that only Christianity does that. Like it, yeah. only Christianity historically has done that. I think you're right in pointing that out. So we focus on Jesus as informed by the Spirit in the Scriptures, as interpreted through the historic and global church. Yeah, and then 
What about and my finally, church? Finally, <laughs> last thing, and just a couple minutes here before we wrap up. Uh, yeah, it brings it down. Fin- the last layer of community here is your own local church. It is a fool's errand to uh, try to try to develop Christianity in isolation. And but you can't just do it thinking about oh, the historic Christians or the Christians across the world they'll never meet. You you got to be embodied standing shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters in the church. And I like how Ephesians, Paul puts this in Ephesians 4, starting in 11. He says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, these gifted people, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's just hitting me different right now in light of this conversation. Um, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, listen to this, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined together by every uh, joint with which it's equipped when each part's working properly makes the body grow. So it builds itself up in love. His point there is avoiding the errors and building yourself up into genuine Christ honoring Christianity has to be done with the various people and gifts of the local church, doing it together, supplementing what's lacking in the other. That is a beautiful picture. And so the final layer is do this in a local church. And it's also important because I love C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He's The book Mere Christianity is actually trying to argue for this kind of basic orthodox Christianity. He, he uses different language. He doesn't maybe conceptualize it the exact same way we do. But he acknowledges that his mere Christianity is not enough. And, and you have to move beyond just the general basic statements of, say, what's in the creeds to something more specific and in flesh. And he puts it this way. He says, I hope no reader will suppose that mere Christianity is here put forward as an alternative to the creeds of the existing communions, as if a man could adopt it, adapt it in preference to congregationalism or Greek orthodoxy or anything else. It's more like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I, I shall have done what I attempted. But it's in the rooms, not the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the doors, not a place to live in. His point is you can't just function in basic Christianity. The Bible says a whole lot more than that, than just what's in the creeds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why we started with like Jesus in the Bible. But you have to choose a home somewhere. And every denomination, every individual church is going to have problems. Maybe some things we have to debate for. Maybe at some time, some point, things you have to divide for. But nonetheless, it's still worth it to be there working it out together. And I hopefully what this whole grid will give us is actually a great deal more of compassion for Christians who believe differently on these secondary things. I hope that we as you know, you and I as Protestant Christians, probably a lot of the people listening to this will say, man, we're, we're Roman Catholic brothers and sisters affirm the creeds, submit to Jesus, affirm these basic things with us, uh, have have a good understanding of salvation. We go, those are our brothers and our sisters. They're in a different room off this main hallway, but where we can collaborate, we will. Our differences are significant and meaningful. There's a reason I'm not Catholic or Orthodox or part of particular denominations, but that doesn't mean they're not Christians. And that doesn't mean we don't have a lot to collaborate on. And that doesn't mean we're not going to be sitting together at the marriage supper of the Lamb one day with that great multitude of people that you got to see a picture of in your experience, which was really cool. So, and, and that's, I think that is, I think that paints it a, a really beautiful picture. Uh, t- take us back to where we started. I, just, just for a moment. Um, I, it's so popular today. I mean, I hear it everywhere. Um, 
this sort of pick and choose Christianity um, where, uh, you know, it's sort of like we are, we're kind of cobbling together a Jesus of our own making, um, largely in agreement with basically my own worldview on how I see things. Just just speak to that mix, remixed religion that we began this with. What would you advise someone to do? Yeah. I guess I would I would encourage you to consider that in, in the same book, Burton points out that this this same demographic of people who are most prone to remix religion are 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 the most prone to depression, anxiety, dissatisfaction in life. Um it's building your own religion, becoming your own prophet, your own priest, your own God is not a key to flourishing. Um, of course, I'm a Christian pastor. I would say key flir- the key to flourishing is found in the one true God who really exists, who really created you, who really can fulfill your deepest needs. And uh, as painful as it is, as uncomfortable as it is, even for me, um, I think flourishing is found in submission to this Jesus, submission to his word and his spirit, doing that in conversation with Christians across time and across the globe, and then doing it plugged into a local church that can actually know you and love you and serve you, wrestle with you through your questions. Um, there may be points where you disagree again, and that's okay. Um, but but coming at it from this this place in humility, trying to take the best of what these traditions have developed over long centuries of wrestling and writing and thinking, that is, um, I think you'll find that ironically to be a far more freeing and comfortable place to actually root and plant and flourish than you would trying to trying to do it on your own. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a really good word, and uh, it gives us uh, it gives us some. Uh, a primer, we might say, this episode for for some conversations we're going to have in some future ones. And uh, as we say often, um, if you've got some questions, uh, maybe about other de- denominations or uh, other religious perspectives, uh, send them in, put them in the show notes uh, or, or put them in the uh, discussion. Let us know. Uh, and this will serve as a primer for many subsequent conversations down the road. I think uh, you framed it for us really well. So uh, thanks, Hager. And as always, thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. 